0: Welcome to Outdoor by 4 magazine's audio edition of issue 38. For those unfamiliar with Outdoor by 4, the magazine began its journey as a fully independent vehicle based adventure and outdoors lifestyle publication in 2013. Since that time, Outdoor by 4 has been the catalyst for expanding the reach of overland and vehicle based adventure travel into the outdoors market, with the focus not only in the mode of travel, whether a 4x4, motorcycle, bicycle, or by foot but also on the adventures themselves and the people who live them. In this issue, you'll hear a sampling of stories from the print edition, including The Dispatch by Outdoor by Four's editor-in-chief, making money while traveling, exploring the ancient cultures and trade routes of the Himalayas, Choices to be Made, a climbing adventure on Gray's and Torrey's peaks in Colorado, and the Slovakian succubus, how I fell in love with Land Rover all over again while testing the new Defender. There are also a variety of additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy anywhere books are sold, or by subscribing or picking up a copy from the Outdoor by 4 website by visiting www.outdoorx4.com. We hope you enjoy this issue of Outdoor by 4 magazine. The Dispatch by Frank Ludwell, Editor-in-Chief. Business closures, economic uncertainty, excuse to escape, working remotely, supply chain disruptions, social distancing, masks, kids at home, kids at school, stress, anxiety, loss of life, hope, unplugged. COVID-19 has taken an already fragile social climate and literally turned the world upside down. How we interact... How we socialize, how we work, and how we play continues to evolve, sometimes changing multiple times in any given day. In a world where technology continues to connect the masses through digital channels, it often feels like we aren't connected at all. Like many of you, I've spent a lot of time trying to navigate this new world we live in. Our print and distribution schedule came to a halt for an extended period because of supply chain issues or retail store closures. Our advertising partners have been challenged with materials availability, affecting their manufacturing capacity at a time when demand has been strong since early in the pandemic. Some of these issues have begun to settle, helping to ease some of the uncertainty and constraints at least in the short term. However, the ripple effect of a world gone upside down won't be known for years, leading one to be left with a choice to either be fixated on pessimism or proactive in adapting to change. When I started publishing nearly 15 years ago, the world was well into its technological evolution, yet a strong analog component still thrived. I remember working countless days and nights trying to convince companies in the vehicle and outdoors market segments of the value of digital, all to little avail. However, a funny thing happened along the way. Entertainment, shopping, even work began to catch up with technology and slowly transition into what we now have become accustomed to, in some cases out of necessity, convenience, or both. My point in this example, and there are many examples throughout the 20th century and going back millennia, is with any significant, even stratospheric event, the long-term byproduct is almost always positive. Hurdles are a part of the life experience. COVID-19 is a hurdle unlike any we've seen during our lifetime, and may not be the last. However, we must adapt and deal with the short-term sacrifices we've been presented with in order to come out better and stronger. That also means looking outside our own worldview and considering what our friends, neighbors, family, and businesses who complete our life experience are going through as well. By taking just a little amount of time to understand the challenges our peers are being faced with, we can better equip ourselves through the interactions that connect us physically and digitally.
1: Making money while traveling. Words and photos by Joe and Kate Russo. What do you do for work? That question or some variation of it inevitably makes its way into a conversation when we meet people on the road. We could be pumping fuel, pulled over at a scenic overlook or grabbing a bite to eat and someone will spot our rig and strike up a conversation. Most people assume our rig is for weekend adventures But once they learn that it's our full-time home, I can see the wheels spinning and anticipate the next question. The one I still chuckle at is, did you cash out of a tech startup and retire early? The answer is no, and we're not independently wealthy either. When Kate and I decided to live this lifestyle beyond the original year that we had planned, we needed to figure out a way to earn a living. While we considered applying for remote jobs, our entrepreneurial spirits were strong, and we decided to make a go at building our own thing. For us, it naturally turned into full-time content creation, which started with our blog We'reTheRussos.com. Now we also produce content for our YouTube channel, I am working on my third book, and Kate is getting ready to publish her first cookbook. The next question is usually along the lines of, how do you make money running a blog and YouTube channel? The primary ways we earn money are through advertising, affiliate programs, sponsorships, product sales, and a membership program. There are many ways to monetize your blog and YouTube channel. If content creation isn't your thing, there are many other ways to earn a living while traveling. Since we hit the road in 2015, we've met people from all walks of life who live this lifestyle and they've figured out different ways to travel and earn a living. HR consultants, customer support reps, authors, seasonal workers, and traveling nurses are among them. As content creators, and as long as we can get good internet access, we can run our business from anywhere in the world. I remember standing at a scenic overlook in Tibet waiting for the sun to rise over the Himalayas and thinking how glad I was that we transitioned to this lifestyle. As more and more people embrace the nomadic lifestyle, there are also more resources available for those interested in making a go of it. This is a breakdown of our main revenue streams. Advertising By enabling advertising on your blog, you can monetize the content based on the number of views or impressions. The more traffic to your blog, the more advertising dollars you can earn. To monetize your blog, look at joining an advertising network such as Google AdSense, Mediavine, or AdThrive. The benefit of going with an advertising network is they manage the advertising piece of the puzzle, which means you can focus on creating good quality content for your readers. In exchange for providing this service, they take a percentage of the earnings. Alternatively, you can build your own advertising program by contacting companies directly and working with their marketing team. We started with Google Adsense and switched to AdThrive once our blog reached over 100,000 page views a month. The benefits include great customer service from the AdThrive team, higher earnings per thousand impressions, and better, higher quality ads. Do your research before signing up with an advertising network and make sure to read the fine print. Affiliate Programs There's a good chance that the companies making your favorite gear have an affiliate program. If not, you can look to see if the gear is sold on sites such as Amazon, REI, or Walmart, which have their own affiliate programs. When you write about your favorite gear on your blog, you can use an affiliate tracking link for that product. This means when a reader clicks on the link in your blog post and makes a purchase, you will earn a percentage of that sale. Affiliate commission programs have a wide range of how much they'll pay, so it's important to look at the details of each program to understand how much you can expect to earn per sale. This will also help you decide which affiliate link to use. For example, your favorite off-road recovery boards may earn you 10% commission through the manufacturer's affiliate program, or 4% with a popular online reseller. Affiliate programs also have their own terms of service, which you'll want to read in detail to make sure you don't violate them. Selling products online. Books and merchandise are popular items that you can sell online without having to carry the products with you and shipping them out. You can turn your blog content into an ebook and sell it as a digital download on your own site Or through a platform such as Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing, which allows authors to self-publish books. Other options include iBooks, Nook, Kobo, and even book aggregators like Draft2Digital. My first two books were published through Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing, and I plan to use it for my third book as well. Kate is looking at selling her cookbooks directly on our blog through an e-commerce platform. Other products you can easily set up to sell online include t-shirts, stickers, hats, and other wearables. Companies like Teespring make it simple for you to create an online store to sell your merchandise. Upload your designs to their platform and configure your storefront to get started selling your products. They handle the printing, shipping, returns, and any customer service questions. This gives you more time to explore off the beaten path where there's no internet. As with everything in life, There are some challenges with living this lifestyle, but we'll gladly take the unpredictability of traveling and working from the road. Having the flexibility to work and play from anywhere in the world and the freedom to change our course at a moment's notice is what we love about being digital nomads. While most of our travels have been in North America, we do have plans to take our rig around the world soon. The next time we're watching the sunrise over the Himalayas, I expect it will be in our own rig. Since 1948, the name WARN has been synonymous with adventure. Specializing in winches, hubs, and bumpers to meet truck, SUV, power sport, utility, and industrial demands, WARN is the leader in reliable recovery equipment and accessories. From the entry-level VR Evo line to heavy-duty and specialized application winches, WARN has the gear to get you out of any situation, every time. Preparation is a necessity. Warn. Go prepared. High Adventure in Nepal's Kingdom of Low,
0: Exploring the Ancient Cultures and Trade Routes of the Himalayas, by Christoph Noll. Under a warm midday sun, I lay back in a patch of grass to enjoy an apple plucked from a nearby tree. Tibetan prayer flags tied to a bamboo pole snapped in the breeze, their colors made faint and edges tattered by the harsh elements of the Himalayas. On the other side of the valley, the world's seventh tallest peak pierced a deep blue sky as wisps of clouds drifted around its rocky escarpments like tangles of wood smoke. Intoxicated by thin air and tranquility, I closed my eyes to steal a quick nap. For the better part of three years, I have traveled scribbled routes through the hills and heights of Nepal. Thousands of miles later, I feel fraternally connected to the small cater of explorers who once plied the mountains of Asia in search of a hidden city. They never found the fabled utopia now dismissed as a fiction, but I did, and by complete happenstance. Shangri Law, as I know it, isn't in China or Bhutan, but rather Nepal. It is a small farm nestled against a pine forest in the former kingdom of Lo. As magical as it is, the journey to get there continues to draw me back. With Nepal's summer monsoons and reluctant retreat, and the expedition season set to begin, I boarded a plane to Kathmandu. A second home of sorts, it is a place I love and loathe in equal measure, and often simultaneously. Depending on my mood, I find the 2,000-year-old city either exotic or gritty. It's also endlessly fascinating and never dull. The perfect antidote to the gloss of the Western world. The minute I step off the plane, I head straight for the older sections of the city made of red brick and intricately carved wood. Within their narrow and twisted streets, pedestrians battle against motorbikes, tuk-tuks, rickshaws, and the occasional cow. Amidst the swirling currents of humanity, hundreds of ancient temples and shrines create placid escapes where devotees and curious tourists find quiet moments of reprieve. For the adventure inclined, Kathmandu is one of the most iconic stopovers in the world. The earliest geological expeditions and mountaineering teams used it as a depot for their endeavors to map, measure, and conquer the world's highest summits. Even today it serves as the romantic rendezvous for climbers, trekkers, and travelers as they gear up for excursions into the Himalayas. And I challenge you to spend a day there and not get Bob Seger's catchy tune of the same name lodged in your head. Given the intensity of Nepal's capital city, I find it best consumed in small bites and, after a few days spent securing supplies and permits, my feet started to itch. It was time to go, and with the morning sun dulled by the perpetual haze of dust and exhaust, I met our crew and climbed into one of our two defenders for the journey west. After a tortuous hour of halting advances, the traffic eventually relented and within minutes the density of people and buildings thinned. The road ahead, A busted patchwork of dirt, mud, and pavement widened enough to permit the long-awaited shift into second gear, and then third. As the turbo spooled and our speed increased, the jungle blurred outside open windows. First time visitors to Nepal often expect to find barren mountain passes and cold windswept peaks. There are plenty of those, but most travelers are pleasantly surprised to discover a country cloaked in verdant green. Thick forests flank terraced fields, crashing into hillsides like giant staircases. The bottom of two strata of the Himalayan foothills, known as the Sivalik Hills in the Manhabarat Range, are enormous and in many places dwarf the scale of the Rocky Mountains. It's rugged terrain and not easily traversed. Distance is hard-won in Nepal, and two days into our trip we had covered just 267 miles. As so often happens, the last 10 ate up the better part of an hour as we bobbled over wet rocks and waited patiently for the occasional tractor, buffalo, or gaggle of kids to clear the roadway. A defender is surprisingly challenged when Nepal's roads are in good nick, but no rig, despite pedigree or purpose, can get around landslides, washouts, or house-sized boulders toppled onto the road. More than once, our route has been foiled with detours adding hours and sometimes days to the journey. Under the glow of a setting sun on day two, we arrived at a familiar cluster of homes on the precipice of a deep valley. Wachi is a tiny village we frequent regularly and the people there we consider extended family. For the last two years we have delivered sustainable drinking water solutions to remote schools and communities throughout Nepal with Lachy the epicenter of those efforts. Anytime we roll into a village, particularly Lachi, it turns into quite a thing. Call it a break from the doldrums, our arrival never goes unnoticed. Throughout Nepal, the phrase Atahi Devo Baba is spoken with reverence and sincerity. Translated to guest is God, they mean it. Our presence is always cause for an elaborate welcoming ceremony followed by several hours of dancing, drumming, and lively social activity. A kind gesture to visitors, they are also coveted opportunities to break out the traditional costumes, pass along favorite songs, and keep the legacy of their people, known as the Magar, alive and renewed. After a few days of inspecting past drinking water projects and meeting with village elders, it was time again to press on. The route ahead would push us ever higher along one of the most famous routes in the world. As borders go, the Himalayas create a colossal wall partitioning in Nepal from Tibet. The only way to connect the two is to cross over a handful of high passes. For the better part of six centuries, salt traders traversed the route through the former Kingdom of Lo and what is today known as Upper and Lower Mustang. The first Westerner to visit the Upper Reaches wasn't a colonial-era explorer dispatched by a geographical society. He was a curious German in the 1950s. Steeped in lore and mystery, only a few monks and merchants possessed the resolve to live in such an inhospitable place. Scraped clean by ever-present winds and fierce sun, the air is so dry and thin it hurts to breathe. Given its proximity to Tibet and the uneasy relationship Nepal has with its northern neighbor, the Mustang only opened to camera-toting travelers in the early 1990s, but that era was short-lived. Nepal's protracted civil war in 1996 kept people out for another decade. With our tanks topped off, we turned northward to Beni, a jumbled mess of a town at the mouth of a canyon leading into the Mustang. An unsightly stack of concrete buildings painted in mismatched pastels and bristling with spikes of uncut rebar, it marks the last place to resupply before trudging onward. Perched on the banks of the raging Kali-Gandaki River, the knee is strewn with the weathered carcasses of buses and abandoned 4 by 4 trucks, most of them missing wheels, body panels, and engines. The road above the town began life just 15 years ago as a mule trail threaded along steep cliffs. Under perpetual construction, it hasn't improved much, although it is considerably wider in some spots. All the same, it extracts a heavy toll on machines and beneath impromptu junkyards bear the evidence. After one more refuel, we slowly wound our way into the heavily protected Annapurna Conservation Area. Every few miles, uniformed guards at military checkpoints scrutinized our permits while devoting extra attention to the drivers. Not just anyone can pilot a vehicle into the Mustang. It's not a matter of prerequisite skill. Because the narrow road is rife with steep cliffs, blind corners, and areas of near-constant falling rock, the nuanced rules of the road change with every bend. Get it wrong, and you will invariably suffer the shouted insults of angry drivers. Botch it outright, and the consequences could be lethal. Whereas most overlanders recoil at the thought of not handling the wheel, I'm more than content to hang out the window with camera in hand. There are a few gripped moments as the road falls away to tortured rapids below, but for the most part, it's a passenger's paradise. One spot not too far from Beni, never fails to drop jaws. Just below the village of Tatapani, the canyon walls part spectacularly like a giant keyhole to reveal the first glimpse of the ivory-white summit of Nilgiri, a monolith towering 23,160 feet above sea level. In a futile effort to describe them, I have often said there are mountains and there are the Himals. To see the latter with your own eyes is to never again deny the distinction or confuse the two. The immensity of the great Himalayas, displayed in multiple miles of vertical earth, bend perception. They don't seem real, and when seen for the first time, no words do them justice. Impossibly big, they seem to always invoke the same reflexive word, either screamed in excitement or whispered in awe. Wow. Driving through a tight section of toppled boulders, the canyon narrowed one last time. With no markers or ceremonious indicators, there is nothing to suggest this section of road plumbed the depths of the deepest gorge on the planet. Slicing between Dalagiri, the seventh tallest mountain in the world at 26,795 feet, and Annapurna at 26,545 feet, the Anhagalchi Gorge plunges 18,270 feet deep. A few more miles up the road, beyond a series of switchbacks, our defenders entered a sprawling valley. Whereas the river in the Narrows was confined and angry, a little higher it widened to braided ropes of lazy currents. The first time I visited the Mustang, it was atop a 500cc Royal Enfield motorbike, a tool we still bring along on every trip. On that initial ride, a late departure and a heavy rainstorm delayed our arrival until the dark hours of night. It wasn't until the next morning that I fully experienced the magnificence of the Mustang. It was unlike any place i had ever been, even in the Himalayas. On both sides of the river, orchards of apple, peach, and cherry trees circled small houses where horses and goats grazed on high mountain grasses. Forests of giant pines climbed steep valley slopes where glaciers far above made their slow tumble along the shoulders of the world's highest summits. For the next few days, our mileage ambitions wane. We spent more time walking in the forest and ambling among the time-worn streets of Marfa, a village so perfectly preserved it feels like a movie set built to emulate the streets of Lhasa. Farther up the road we stopped to watch the Buddhist prayer rituals at the Kagchod Temple. As it has been done for more than 500 years, Drums, horns, and chants echoed throughout red clay walls to the blue heavens above. Only a few miles away and a thousand feet above loomed the mountain station of Maktintanath, where people of Hindu faith trekked to one of the highest temples in the world. There they prayed to Vishnu, the preserver god. Even for non-believers, there is a spiritual power to the high mountains that is almost palpable. I can spend days exploring the villages, temples, and monasteries of the Mustang, but the high altitude requires patience and planning. After a full day of ethereal heights, it was time to descend and before long, we were once again amidst the apple trees at a quaint farm along the banks of the Kali-Gandaki River. Relaxed and maybe just tired, I surrendered to the sounds of rural life. A rice pot hissed from within the small house as two young boys giggled and wrestled with an unwilling goat. Chickens clucked as a buffalo munched on the leaves of a nearby bush. As the evening sun bathed Annapurna in shifting shades of pink and then purple, I began to wonder about the men of history who once searched for Shangri-La. What splendors they must have found along the way. Sitting in the moonlight with a cup of hot tea and a cold Himalayan breeze creeping down my jacket, I gave a quiet salute into the darkness to my fellow searchers from long ago and far away. Here's to the quest, lads and wherever it takes you. Choices to be made. A Climbing Adventure on Grays and Torrey's Peaks, by Alan Ellis. The turnoff for the difficult version of the Torrey's Peaks route is hard to see in the dark. And not just dark, but the 4am kind of dark you only find in the solitude of the backcountry. Despite our blazing headlamps, it was obvious we had gone too far and missed our turnoff. This left us with two choices. Continue up the easy trail, or go back and try to find the turnoff for the more difficult route. Which one would you choose? In previous issues of Outdoor by Four, we've shared our adventures of climbing and hiking Colorado's 14,000 foot mountains, best known as the Fourteeners. There are 54 Fourteeners in Colorado and climbing all of them is quite the accomplishment. Most of these peaks can be attained via relatively benign hiking trails, while others require technical expertise and expert mountain skills. This day's journey, however, would involve the attempt of two 14ers in Colorado that are, by far, the most popular and easiest 14ers to climb. Grays and Torrey's Peaks. Although they are separate mountains, Grays and Torrey's Peaks are usually done together. They share an approach trail, and are only separated by a small ridge, thus making it relatively easy to climb both mountains in one outing. They're both easily accessible, have well-maintained trails, and the routes are easy to follow. When someone wants to begin climbing 14ers, we always tell them to start with Greys and Tories. But because of their accessibility, Greys and Tories are extremely popular, and thus extremely crowded. They are among the most frequently climbed mountains in Colorado. As you may have guessed, we chose to turn around, heading back down the trail to find the path to the more difficult route. Luckily, our GPS guided us to the turnoff. Instead of the normal trade route up Tories Peak on a well-maintained trail, we were going up the more difficult Northeast Ridge. Better known as the Kelso Ridge route, it resembles a goat path, or sometimes no path at all. Kelso Ridge is an unmarked route requiring intense route finding, scrambling skills, and extreme exposure on knife-edge terrain. Fortunately, our party were all experienced mountaineers, so this route was well within our ability. However, for your first outing up Torrey's and Gray's Peaks, we recommend the standard route up the hiking trail. Because of their popularity, the trails of Grays and Tories are some of the most crowded of any trail in Colorado, and the vehicle traffic and parking at the trailhead are becoming a real problem. On a typical weekend day, the parking lot is completely full by 6am. People must park up to a mile from the trailhead along the road. It is highly recommended that you avoid a weekend day and pick a day during the week as an alternative. Even during the week, you can expect lots of people on the trail and a full parking lot. Heading up the Kelso Ridge, we came upon our first real obstacle, a rock wall going straight up. This would be the first section requiring us to use hands and rock climbing skills. There are roughly three similar difficult sections on the Kelso Ridge. The most daunting of these is the final obstacle, a knife edge on the ridge. It certainly makes for an exhilarating finale to your ascent. However, for your first outing up Torrey's Peak you can avoid this scary stuff by sticking to the standard route up the hiking trail. Although benign as described, the trail up Grays and Torrey's Peaks is still a mountain trail in an alpine environment and subject to hazards associated with any mountain adventure. Weather and altitude are the biggest factors. In the summer months in the Colorado mountains, afternoon thunderstorms are a daily occurrence. Most summer days start as clear and calm with afternoon storms building around lunchtime. Afternoon thunderstorms in Colorado are the biggest danger to hikers and climbers. The weather changes immediately to cold and windy with violent lightning storms. To avoid the daily storms, it is best to start any hike in Colorado around sunrise and be off the mountains by noon at the latest. There is no shelter or cover above 11,000 feet, which is treeline in the mountains. Greys and Torrey's peaks are at 14,000 feet, so it is important not to be above treeline when the afternoon storms build. Altitude is another hazard in the Colorado mountains. Altitude sickness can be debilitating and very dangerous if you are not properly acclimated. It is recommended hikers adjust to the altitude by gradually increasing their altitude over a period of days. Altitude sickness may cause headaches, nausea, dizziness, and even death in extreme cases. If experiencing any of these symptoms, it is best to turn around and head back down to a lower altitude. The infamous Knife Ridge on the Kelso Ridge was an ominous sight. With drop-offs of 500 feet to either side, the only way across is to crawl very slowly, while maintaining your balance and meeting the obvious goal of not falling off into the valley. Only one person at a time can cross the final knife edge crux of the route. With the final obstacle negotiated, the summit was in sight. As we reached the top of Torrey's Peak, we could see the storm clouds starting to build. It was time to get off the mountain. From Torrey's summit, we could see the flat ridge connecting to Gray's Peak. Despite the relatively short distance, building clouds meant Greys would have to wait until another day. As we hiked down the mountain via the standard route, we ran into a Colorado 14ers initiative, CFI Peak Steward. CFI's mission is to protect and preserve the natural integrity of Colorado's 14,000 foot peaks through active stewardship and public education. They do trail maintenance, provide peak stewards for on-site public education, and partner with government lane agencies not only to protect the Colorado 14ers, but also to promote peak accessibility for the general public. Peak stewards are a common sight during the summer weekends on some of the more popular 14ers. They donate their time to educate hikers about leave-no-trace ethics and ways to protect fragile alpine ecosystems from damage due to inappropriate use. For more information about CFI, go to www.14ers.org. We thanked the peak steward and headed back down the trail. As we looked back, ugly storm clouds loomed over the greys and tory summits and the parking lot was a welcome sight. Remember, it is imperative to get an early start hiking these mountains. Had we started any later, we would have had to deal with the dangerous storm conditions. Get an early start and you'll do great. Good luck in your Gray's and Tories adventure. Planning your trip. First, getting there. Gray's and Tories peaks are in central Colorado near the town of Georgetown. From Georgetown, go west on Interstate 70 and take Exit 221 to Forest Service Road 189. FS-189 is a very rough two-wheel drive dirt road, and low-clearance vehicles are not recommended. Proceed up FS-189 for two miles to the trailhead where there are a parking lot and restrooms. On a typical summer weekend, the parking lot will be full by 6 a.m. From the signed trailhead and the footbridge, the hike up to the summit of Torrey's Peak is a 7.5 miles round trip with 3,000 feet of elevation gain. Add another mile and 500 additional feet of elevation if also climbing Gray's Peak. Depending on your fitness level, plan on a hike of four to six hours. To avoid the more difficult and technical Kelso Ridge route, follow the well-worn hiking trail all the way up to the summit. Go to www.14ers.com for complete details and photos of the hiking route. Regarding equipment, Hiking greys and tories is a strenuous endeavor in an alpine environment. It is recommended you wear non-cotton synthetic clothing, sturdy hiking shoes, and a hat. Carry the 10 essentials, including map compass, sun protection, first aid, knife, fire starter, extra food, extra water, emergency shelter, extra clothing, and rain gear. And last, develop a strategy for success. Start early, stay hydrated and fueled, Pace yourself, with the slowest person in your group hike in the front, and hike your own hike. Please respect the mountain and use leave-no-trace practices, which you can learn from at www.lnt.org. For more information on Grays and Torres Peaks, including maps, route information, and hiking techniques, visit www.14ers.com.
1: you looking for the perfect fitting, fully customizable pop-up truck camper for your next adventure? Then look no further than the selection from Four-Wheel Campers. From classic slide-in, bed top, and flatbed configuration designs, Four-Wheel Campers has the setup you need. With extensive available custom options and precision built in Woodland, California, Four-Wheel Campers has been providing quality equipment for the outdoor community since 1972. For more information on the pop up camper you've been looking for, then pop on over to fourwheelcampers.com. That's F O U R wheelcampers.com. The Slovakian succubus. How I fell in love with the Land Rover all over again. Land Rover's new defender. Words and photos by Ray Hyland. Remember that crazy neurotic ex you had who seemed to be two separate people? The new Defender is a little like that. I'm not saying it will break all your LPs and scatter them across your lawn and then call you at midnight to apologize. I mean it literally feels like two very different cars. To explain, let me back up a bit. Anyone who has ever owned a Land Rover understands the love-hate relationship owners have with the brand. My first Defender was a 2005 110 TD5 diesel, bought brand new off the lot and customized just the way I wanted it. I love that truck. I love the way it looked, the fuel economy on the trail, the roomy interior for all my camping and recovery gear, the way I could hammer it down the muddy rutted tracks of Malaysia like a bobsled driver, literally bouncing side to side the whole way down, knowing it would easily shrug off the abuse. My current 1993 110 is the same. It has taken the worst North America can throw at it and never let me down. It's a rolling tin shed with low gearing, a lift, big tires, and a full roll cage. It's been able to swallow all the gear I could ever want to carry and still get me over the pass, through the swamp, or up the steep riverbank. I love it every time I look at it. I also hate it. I hate the idea of driving it long distances, although I still do. I have driven it from Seattle to New York and back, from Baja to the Yukon and everywhere in between it's embarrassingly slow it's deafeningly loud it's terrible on corners in the straights when accelerating or when braking but that's the way it's always been with defenders you buy it for the ability to tackle any trail and accept discomfort of highway driving as a necessary evil i have many land rovers my oldest is a 1954 and i drove it 16,000 miles from london to singapore over a nine month period The creature comforts and sound-deadening improvements between my 1954 Series 1 and the final 2015 Defender, all made in England, are almost nil. So, when someone recently tossed me the keys to a shiny new, now made in Slovakia, 2020 Defender 110, I was a bit surprised. I had just finished two weeks in a 2020 Nissan Pathfinder, a street-oriented soft rotor. I expected the new Defender to be comparable, in fact I was expecting to pretty much hate everything about the new Defender. I assumed it would be a wallowing hippo on the pavement and a prissy princess on the trail. As it turns out, it is neither. I was given the P400 version of the 110. That means it was a weird hybrid electric gas supercharged turbocharged 6 cylinder engine producing about 400 horsepower. The technical details of how this all works together are probably all over the Land Rover website. And if you are keen on the car I'd recommend searching for them. But in layman's terms, the net result is you have a ridiculous amount of power at whatever RPM you happen to be at whenever you happen to want it. Let me repeat that for the readers who currently have an older Defender. You have as much power as you might like anytime you might like it. I am not going to talk about complexity or longevity or reliability. It's all brand new and it's a roll of the dice whether it lasts until you die of old age or if it is as reliable as everything else in 2020. But let me just say, when you put your right foot to the floor and the exhaust howls like a banshee as the RPMs bounce off the rev limiter and you are pushing a two and a half ton truck sideways on twisty canyon roads designed to be tackled on a Ducati, you will in no way mistake this for that soft rotor back in the parking lot or for the defenders of yesteryear. No, it doesn't handle like an Aston Martin. Well, maybe better than the old ones, not the new ones. But it handles better than it has any right to. That's probably thanks to the magical air suspension that senses every dip and adapts accordingly. Or it could be the alloy chassis that is stiffer than anything JLR has ever produced. Or it could be the computers that analyze exactly how much power to deliver at any one wheel at any moment to ensure the truck feels planted and in control. It's probably a combination of all these things and more. Regardless, you will never again Dread the drive to the trail before the fun begins. From now on, reaching the trailhead will be a big part of the fun. After playing in the twisties, I had some more mundane driving to do before it was time to get off the pavement. This included taking the 110 through the center of an unfamiliar town in rush hour. Like the old Defenders, you sit up high and have a good view of the road in front of you. The dash display and entertainment interface is pretty decent. Not as bad as many systems out there, but still more complicated than it needs to be. The built-in sat-nav got me through town, but Google Maps on an iPhone is still better. The only reason I was using the built-in sat-nav was because the car wouldn't connect to my phone. A chat with a Land Rover rep later said that when this happens, I should turn off the car, unplug your phone, turn the car on, wait for the system to fully boot up, and then plug your phone in. Kind of like treating the car like a giant computer, which I guess, in a way it is, Or, it's 80 separate computers all trying to dance together. Of course, once I had my phone synced to the car, I lost FM radio, satellite radio, and pretty much every entertainment option except my phone. Even when I tried unplugging, rebooting, replugging, unbooting, etc., all I got on the display was the spinning, still-trying icon. Eventually, I gave up. These hiccups are not really surprising, given the complexity of the vehicle, and since it can get software updates over the air like a Tesla, Presumably, these issues will be addressed quickly. While the driver's position is commanding, in traffic, the side rear visibility when changing lanes is disappointing, given how much glass surrounds the cabin. When doing a right shoulder check, the massive square over the C-pillar and the high second row seatbacks completely block the right rear quarter. When trying to turn left, the thick B-pillar is also difficult to see around. Out of the city and onto the highway, the 110 again shines. As an overlander i recognize we spend far more time on highways than we do on dirt roads statistically that's also where most of our accidents happen therefore safe and predictable highway manners are important as if not more important than trail abilities on the highway the defender feels like a tank solid sure-footed and immune from the buffeting of passing 18 wheelers panic stops at speed where straight and predictable and sudden lane changes to avoid debris where possible with no hint of the top-heavy feel that affects many SUVs at speed. There was minimal road noise from the Goodyear Duratrax and no discernible wind noise even above 80 miles per hour. Of course, my vehicle didn't have the optional snorkel or roof rack, so YMMV, your mileage may vary. The seats are excellent, and the second row actually has enough room for passengers to not feel cramped, so no one has to suffer if you're putting in long days on the road. Okay, so it's great on the pavement, How would it do in the dirt? Leaving the highway at the trailhead, we didn't bother to air down from the 37 PSI street pressure. We simply brought the suspension up to off-road height, about a foot of clearance, which is more clearance than my 1993 D110 has running on 35 inch tires, and set off down the trail. Good visibility allowed us to pick up the pace and play with, sorry, evaluate the Defender a bit more aggressively. You'll notice that automotive publications never talk about speeding in their articles. That would imply doing potentially irresponsible things, like teenagers without adult supervision. Instead, journalists talk about spirited driving. As we progressed down the test track through miles of sandy washes, sweeping gravel corners, and long washboard straightaways, we got progressively more spirited. Even on loose and rapidly changing surfaces, and sections where ditches and hidden dips forced hard braking, quick responses, and huge grins, the Defender did not disappoint. At all times, the truck felt solidly in control, giving immediate feedback to the driver and reacting to input smoothly and in a linear fashion. No bouncing over bumps, no unexpected breaking away of the rear, no uncomfortable front-end dives when braking before an unexpected dip, just fast, flat, and frankly, effortless. We made our way into an OHV area of towering, wind-driven dunes and let all 400 horses come out to play. In sand mode. The truck eases you gently into the throttle when coming off a stop, keeps the revs higher between shifts, and gives you full and immediate power when you need it at speed. So when you feel the truck starting to catch in softer sand, you can power out of it in a way few production trucks can match. When you are flying across the dunes, the inevitable tendency to drift left or right depending on what the sand is doing underneath you is easily corrected by a gentle twitch of the steering and a bit more power. The suspension is so responsive and the driver aids so intuitive, you will feel like Colin McRae racing Dakar. Of course, the old Defender fans will argue that an air suspension isn't as robust as the old coil springs, and that's possibly true, but honestly, even if I needed to buy a new set of airbags every 5-10 to years, it's totally worth it for this level of handling. When we got into the rocky technical bits, the proper mechanical rear locker, advanced traction control, and ample power made climbing up and over the combination of rocky ledges and slippery gravel surprisingly easy. The vehicle also has built-in cameras all over it, giving the driver views of the road ahead, around, and even under the vehicle. A bit gimmicky, but if you find yourself needing to cross a dodgy log bridge without a spotter or avoid some sharp rocks on a very narrow trail, you will be glad you have them. Personally, I found it difficult to glance down at the camera displays the few times I tried, as I drive with polarized prescription sunglasses, and they pretty much kill my ability to use the touchscreen unless I stop the car and take my glasses off. Luckily, the car is capable enough that you can simply drive it like a normal car and ignore all the clever stuff going on in the dashboard. My glasses also made the rearview mirror, showing a view of the rear-mounted camera difficult to use, but luckily, you can flip a switch and it turns back into a normal mirror. Unfortunately, if you buy the version with the center front seat, the center seat back is so high compared to the driver's seat back that even if you only have a child or a Pomeranian sitting next to you, you won't be able to use the regular rear mirror, only the camera display. These little issues are just that, small things to pick at, and the only reason I am mentioning them is because there are no big things to complain about. The truck is amazing on the road, on the trail, and in the dunes it transformed my perception of what a Defender could be. After years of complaining about Land Rover losing touch with their past, I have to admit, maybe it's me who is out of touch. The world has moved forward, and the Defender has moved forward with it, and that's not a bad thing. Given my decades-long love-hate relationship with Defenders, it seems like now there's a lot more to love and a lot less to hate. Feedback from others who have driven the Defender is also very positive, and I expect a lot of people will be putting one of these in the driveway, hoping for years, if not decades, of on- and off-road adventures. I do hope the new Defender will have the reliability to stand up to those expectations because, put bluntly, that's the only question the new Defender still needs to answer. In the meantime, I am trying to decide which of the seven old Land Rovers in my driveway I will be selling to potentially order a 2021 model for myself. Editor's note, a number of aftermarket companies have already developed products for the all-new Land Rover Defender. So if you're considering this truck as your next adventurer, check out the roof rack, suspension upgrades, and more from Frontrunner Outfitters at FrontrunnerOutfitters.com and Lucky 8 Off-Road at Lucky8LLC.com.
0: Here's what's coming up in Issue 39 of Outdoor by 4 Magazine. Bill and Susan Dragoo share a 4 wheel adventure into the Big Bend region of West Texas, Overland in the Namib, a journey through the Namib Desert in Africa, Moto Mentor, Lessons Learned Along New Mexico's Backcountry Discovery Route, and In Focus, Off-Road Photography Tips and Techniques. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by 4 website at www.outdoorx4.com regularly for new tips, reviews, and stories, and join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by 4. You can also follow Outdoor by 4 in the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook at OutdoorX4, and by using the hashtag OutdoorX4. Until our next issue, we wish each of you the happiest of adventures.